Well, hello. Good morning. <laughs> it's like lights, and here it is. It's good to see you guys today. My name is Joel. I am the family pastor here at One Church, and I'm spending the month with you guys talking through this series that we have lovingly titled White Picket Fences. It's a, uh, a time for us to focus on how we can build our homes, our families, our marriages, how we can prepare to have a family, to have a marriage, how we can just build our lives. And we're using um, the idea of white picket fences as that ideal, that, 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 that dream that's in our head, and our mind, and we start into marriage with this ideal, this is how it's going to be, we, we start to have a family, this, this is what it's going to look like, and what do we do when all that comes crashing down? We're using Nehemiah as the backdrop, and Nehemiah was a leader for the nation of Israel who was charged by God with rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Rebuilding the, the fences that had fallen down and, and, and what that meant. And to really grasp Nehemiah, we have to kind of get the context. And so if you were with me last week, we talked a little bit about the context. And if you're just joining me this week, I'm not going to do it again because it's really boring. It's really, really boring. I'll just be honest with you. It's really boring. And, and, and I'm not going to track all the... And I really wish that I had the capacity to, to set the story the background, the context of Nehemiah and Ezra and what all was going on to song. I, I wish I had that ability. I wish I had the ability to put it to a Billy Joel song. Hey, do you know Billy Joel music? <laughs> he does everyone. He's our piano man. We're not going to sing that song. We're going to sing this song. We're living in Jerusalem town. And the Babylonians brought our walls to the ground. Most of our friends have been taken away. The temple is gone. No Jewish kids in this year's Hanukkah play. See, here in town we to have it all We didn't think our selfishness would cause a fall We ignored all the judges that God sent Kept worshiping false gods Wouldn't listen to the prophets who told us to repent Then Nebuchadnezzar came a-storming He took away most our women and men his army destroyed our loved town. They carried our people away like Ezra and Nehemiah who had frowns. Forty-seven years in the kingdom of Babylon. Nehemiah found a way to get his work on. Eating bites from all the king's dish. Sipping from his cup. Making sure no one poisoned his fish. Later, King Cyrus in 539 BC, he said to the Jews, Hey, you people are free. Ezra packed his bags and headed south. Nehemiah stuck with the king. The Jews rebuilt the temple, so God had a house. Let's build it up. And we're living in Jerusalem town. But our walls are still broken down. 
sure we need someone to come and help us build back our home. Nehemiah, please come to our town. Josh Woodleaf, everybody. Josh Woodleaf. Josh, Josh and I don't really have much of a, of a comic well to go to. If you've been with any of these series that I've preached, we pretty much set up a song and sing it like that every single time. So come back in about six months when I preach again, or come back in a month when Chris gets into a, a, an inline rollerblading accident, and I'll probably sing another song. In 1984... A movie, now known as a cinematic classic, the Ralph Macchio hit, Karate Kid, hit the theaters. And everyone in my neighborhood, everyone at my school, wanted to learn karate. They were all kung fu fighting. These cats, they were fast as lightning. And everybody wanted to do karate, including a certain eight-year-old husky lad with too many cowlicks on his head, who had an affinity for sweatsuits. And he begged his mom. He begged his mom, let me take karate. And I was the kind of kid that didn't realize how poor we really were. Like we were, we were total lower middle class people. Grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Both parents had to work. I was that latchkey kid, let myself in at home every day, walked myself home from school, kind of took care of myself because my parents had to work. And so I never realized how little money we actually had. It's like when my kids ask me for something now, they say, hey, Dad, can you buy us this? And I said, no, we don't have any money. And they look at me and they go, well, just go get some more money. It's just that easy. And that's what I would always do with my parents. Oh, sign me up for this, sign me up for that. And I begged to take karate. And to make matters worse, in Washington, D.C., there was this local commercial that always came on for Junri Self-Defense. And it would come on, and it would be these, these terrible, like, slow-mo shots of, like, people breaking bricks and boards. It was awesome when you're eighth grade, or eight-year-old boy. It's awesome. And the song went, when you take Junri self-defense, then you too can say, nobody bother me, nobody bother me, call USA 1000, and you'll be right for life. Two songs today, I give you. Two songs. And then at the end, and then at the end, like must have been Master Junri's kids. These two little kids would come up on, on the screen, and one of them would go, nobody bother me. And then the other one would go, nobody bother me either. And he'd wink. It was awesome. And I wanted to do karate. Everybody was doing karate, and I begged and begged and begged. So one day my mom came home, and she said, hey, I, I signed you up for karate. I was like, yes, karate. You know, I mean, I'm going to sweep the leg. I'm going to win the tournament. I mean, this is my shot. The Cobra Kai are going down. And she goes, but you're put on the waiting list. I'm pretty sure my mom just made this up. Because 28 years later, I'm still waiting for Master Junri to call me. I'm pretty positive that she just made that up. And I'm waiting. I'm, he's going to call any day. This is going to happen. I'm going to make it in. And I really think, and if you guys tell my mom this, I'm going to be so mad at you, okay? But I don't think it was a money thing. My mom knew me. <laughs> and she, 
she saw my body, all right? This body's not made for fighting. I told the teenagers this one night at Relevant, this, this body's made for love, all right? It's made for love. And she knew I probably didn't have the discipline, the energy <laughs> to put into actually getting good at karate because it takes time, it takes effort to build up to get to that point. It always takes effort. Everything that we do, it always takes work. It takes practice. It takes time. Conviction is one thing. Passion is one thing. Desire is one thing. Those are all very well and good. And often that wells within us. We have this conviction to to do this or do this. We have this passion to, to, to make this statement or to stand in it. We have this desire to have a home that is good and perfect and wonderful and loving and cookies are always laying out. It's another thing to put action and movement and response and faith. It's totally different. We meet Nehemiah here in the Old Testament and Nehemiah had conviction. He had passion, he had desire. But I make this contention. Nehemiah has a book in the Bible named after him because he is a man who acted. He responded. He moved. He had faith. When it comes to our homes, when it comes to our lives, when it comes to raising our children or walking with the Lord or serving or ministering, whatever we feel led and called to do, conviction is great. But when you pair it with movement, with action, with a response, that's when it becomes a powerful, significant thing. Nehemiah is a man that we met in Susa, the, the, the capital of the Persian kingdom. And he was working for the king of Persia. He was his cupbearer. That meant he tasted all the food to make sure that he wasn't going to be assassinated, he wasn't going to be poisoned. And he gets a report from some of his family members. They come to him in Persia. And he asks, how are things back home in Jerusalem? Because it had been 94 years since the Jews had been let go out of exile. His people had been released out of exile, and they began to return back to their home, return back to Jerusalem, which was the center of their country. It was the center of their religion. And he gets this report that the walls are broken down. In Nehemiah 1, where we talked last week, there was a a, a deep desire in him to do something. But we learned that Nehemiah was a man who not only had conviction... He had faith. He responded. We're going to pick up his story in Nehemiah chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. We also encourage and invite you to go to Uversion, which is a, an app. It's the, 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 the largest selling downloaded app of the Bible in the, uh, in the app smartphone world. You can download it. You can go there to the live side and look up White Picket Fences Week 2. It has all of our scripture, all of our notes for you guys to have and to work through. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, we, we, we pick up on his story, on his journey out of this conviction and calling into response to what God is calling him to do. If you have your, your, your scripture there, look with me. In Nehemiah 2, let's start in, in verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, it's important for us to, to, to stop here and see the month of Nisan, all right? We, that's not on our calendar, all right? If, if your birthday is in the month of Nisan, I'm sorry because Nisan doesn't exist anymore. But Nisan is actually sometime in the spring. We met Nehemiah in, 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 in chapter 1 in the month of Chislev, which was December-ish. And Nisan is about four months later, so we're looking sometime like March, April, maybe very early May that this is happening. It's been four months, 
Four months since Nehemiah got the report from Jerusalem. Four months since he was broken. We saw last week he wept, he mourned, he prayed. He was hurting for his people. He's hurting for their capital city. And he gets this report, but here it is four months later. Nehemiah wasn't sitting around. He wasn't being lazy. He wasn't being complacent. Sometimes obedience has to simmer. Sometimes obedience is is slow because God was building in Nehemiah. For those of you that are being called to something, maybe it's slower than you think it should be or want it to be, but God is building in you. And we're going to see what what God was up to in Nehemiah, what God was up to in King Artaxerxes' hearts, what he was doing here. Because sometimes it takes time. It's got to percolate. It's got to simmer. It's got to get to a point where that, that, that desire that obedience can boil over so God can do something great. Let's pick it up in verse two. And the king said to me, I'm sorry, it says, and I took up the wine in verse one. I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. And then it says, now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heavens. It says in verse 1 that he had not been sad. Nehemiah said, every time I've gone before the king, I've not been sad. Because of his job, because of what he did for the king, he was in the king's court probably on a daily basis. Probably multiple times a day. He would come in with the meals. He would come in with the cup. He would come in with the food and he would present it to the king. So multiple times a day he was there and it says, I was not sad in his presence. But again, sometimes obedience has to simmer. It has to to, to rise and God is building. And God stirs King Artaxerxes' heart. And the king says to me, why are you sad? Nehemiah says. The king looks at him and says, what's wrong? What is in you has to be a sadness of the heart because you're not sick. God is making the move on behalf of Nehemiah and on the behalf of his people. God is making the move. And Nehemiah says, and I was afraid. I was afraid. Fear is very much at play when we're called to do something big. I wish I could give you something really pastoral and be like, no, there's no fear. There's tons of fear. Can I be really honest with you? I'm scared most of the time. I live most of my days in fear because my job is to tend to souls, is to talk of eternity, is to help people understand the gospel and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even totally understand it. Fear is a big part of of, of what it is to follow in obedience, but it can't be something that slows us or stalls us or keeps us from acting in faith. Because action is necessary. We see Nehemiah is afraid. He's afraid probably because he's before a king who could say yes to his request. He could say no. Or the king had all the right to be like, off with his head. Causing an insurrection. He wants to go back to these people that I let go in mercy. And maybe he's going to lift them back up and bring them back. He knows all the ins and outs. He could have ended Nehemiah. But I think Nehemiah was also afraid because it's like, oh, here we go. I got to do what God's laid on my heart. 
Responding to God is going to fill us with fear sometimes. It's going to fill us with some anxiety, some worry. And the choice came to Nehemiah, and the choice comes to you and I. Will I act in obedience, or will I just sit here and maintain the status quo? Many of us are feeling today that God is up to something. And many of us are feeling today that there's a fear inside of us. So I want to look at what Nehemiah does. I want to I glean from his secrets, all right? I want us to see for me and for, for, for all of us here today, what did Nehemiah do that set him apart, that gave him a book of the Bible? And he does two things. When the king looks at him and the king asks, what's going on? What is your request? And Nehemiah is filled with fear. Nehemiah does two very significant things. And if you write anything down, write this down. Nehemiah did one thing first. He prayed. And the second thing he did is he acted. And if you were here last week, yes, those are the same points I had last week. And guess what? If you come next week, that's the same points I'm going to give you next week. Nehemiah is defined by two things. He prays and he acts. He prays and then he moves. He feels a stirring. He prays about it. And then he has that conviction come over into faithful, obedient action. Nehemiah does two things. There's, there's nothing that we have to dig in and be like, oh, what did he really do here? Tell me more about his leader. Nehemiah prays and Nehemiah acts. He does it in chapter one. He does it in chapter two. He does it in chapter three. He does it in chapter four. If there was a Nehemiah 11, he would still be praying. He would still be acting. If there was a second Nehemiah, he would still be praying. He would still be acting. This is what he did. And this is what we can do when it comes to going into our homes and building back up the things that life has broken down. We pray and we act. God wants people who pray. God wants people who act. God wants families that pray and husbands that pray and wives that pray and children that pray and grandparents that pray. He wants servants that pray and volunteers that pray and ministers that pray. And he wants people who act and families that act and husbands that act, and wives that act, and children that act. He wants people to do this. He doesn't hide it from us. If you come here today to get 10 steps to improve our family, there's lots of other places that I'll point you to to read on that. I don't have those. I'm not a very smart man, all right? My brain is very tiny, and it is surrounded by cotton candy, all right? I look at what Scripture tells us. I look at what Nehemiah did. He prayed, he acted. So I give to you with all the love and grace that I can can muster, pray, act when it comes to our homes. And the reason that this is so vital, why these two acts more than anything else releases what God can do is because when we pray and then when we act upon what that prayer is, there's no room for us to be given any type of glory, any type of credit, any type of way, way to go, you did awesome there. When we pray to God, we're saying, God, I have no idea how to handle my kid. I have no idea what to do with my husband. I have no idea what to do with my home. I have no idea what to do with my finances. God, I need you to divinely move. I need you to spiritually do something in me because I can't do it anymore. I can't wrap my arms, my strength, my mind around it. I am incapable. And that's when God says, Finally, I've been waiting for Nehemiah. I've been waiting for you to hand it over to me so I can fill you with the courage. I can fill you with the strength. I can fill you with the purpose to go to rebuild the fences. 
when we pray and when we act, it releases us and it unleashes God. Nehemiah has this moment where the king looks at him. In verse 4, and he says, what are you requesting? In Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 4 says this, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah pauses and he prays. It doesn't say specifically what he prayed. But because I'm trained in Hebrew, when it says, and I prayed to God in the Hebrew, it, it, it literally says, ah, help. Okay, maybe it doesn't say that. We don't know what he says. But he pauses and he prays. I can guarantee you this. Nehemiah didn't have time to break out the incense, put on a big clerical robe, get a couple of altar boys to come up with candles and crosses and chant in Latin. He didn't have time to do that. He had a moment before the most powerful man in the known world at that time, the most powerful king, the ruler of the greatest country, the ruler of the greatest army. And Nehemiah is standing before him, and he says he pauses and prays. It's these small, defining prayers that many of our families hinge on. We want these grand moments where we gather around our dinner table and our family, they all rise up and we hold hands. And I'm sure for many of you that happens all the time. When your kids unload all of their prayer requests and all of their doubts and all of their fears and they go, Mom, tell me how to handle this. Dad, I want to tell you all about this situation. I'm sure that happens where you. It doesn't really happen in my home. But in my mind, I would love that. Let's rise up. Really where our families, where it happens, where those defining moments are when we have a split second to pause before we react. And it's in those moments that great leaders are defined for Nehemiah and for many of you in this room. When our kid walks in drunk, we don't have chance, like I said, to light incense and and, 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 and chant some Latin. Satuna, gonna choke my son up. We don't have time to do that. We pause. We react. Because life doesn't happen in the ideal. It's not gonna happen that way. Life happens in the real, in the moment, when the white picket fences come crumbling down. It's when you're sitting in front of your boss and he says, your position is no longer needed. You're let go. It's when you're sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor says, we can't find the baby's heartbeat. It's when you you get the, the, the note, when you get the message that it's cancer. It's when, it's when you see the web history of your husband's laptop. It's when the, the kid comes to you and says, Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant. We have but a moment to pause. And I encourage you to pray. And very often those prayers are, Ah! What? Help! Amen. And sometimes those are the most profound important, powerful, beautiful prayers that you will ever pray. Help, God. Lead me, Spirit. I need you, Jesus. Amen. Nehemiah pauses, and he prays, and then he acts. Nehemiah has a king look at him and says, why the long face? We see Nehemiah act in three ways. I'm going to give you those, and then I'm going to shut up and get off the stage, all right? 
Three things that he does. Nehemiah acts in three ways. First, he acts by asking. He asks of the king. Look with me back in chapter 2. Let's start down in verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting behind him, if the pressure's not on him, all right, it's not just the king, it's the queen, it's the whole dang court. And the king says, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. He says, king, it's going to take me this long. I, I, I've got a plan, got a leadership from the spirit here. This is what I think. In verse 7 it says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let a letters be given to me to give to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house I shall occupy. I love Nehemiah. Because when he asks, he asks big. The king's like, what, what's your request? How long is it going to take you? And Nehemiah goes, it's going to take me this amount of time. And he says, and I need some passage, safe passage. Just get me through these places. That doesn't just mean a letter from the king. It meant a royal army detachment was sent with Nehemiah. He had protection. He had body men that were going to lead him through. And then Nehemiah, this is the best part, Nehemiah goes, and how about you give all the timber to this project? Timber for a city that, that doesn't belong to you, to people that don't worship you, to a country that's not even your country. Rebuild the gates, rebuild the walls, and here's Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes, and the timber to build my house. So not only are you going to give me paid vacation, not only are you going to give me safe passage, you're going to build the walls for the Jews, you're going to build the gates for the Jews, and you're going to build my house, king. What do you say? Verse 8. <laughs> The very bottom it says, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I want you to note the second part more than the first part. The king responded, but it had nothing to do with the king, had nothing to do with Nehemiah. It had everything to do with God. The hand of God was upon Nehemiah because God responds to his people. God responds to the prayers of his people. Now don't, don't, kind of sign me up. Oh, Joel's all health and wealth gospel. He's a prosperity preacher. He's going to have a show on TBN. I'll be honest, I would love one because you just go on that channel and you just make up whatever you want and people send you money. Sounds great to me. But unfortunately, I believe in the Bible and believe in the gospel, so I've got to keep preaching that. So I'm not all health and wealth here. I'm just simply saying when we connect with what God is doing and where God is leading, he wants to respond to those prayers. God had prepared not only Nehemiah's heart, he had prepared King Artaxerxes' heart to hear this request. God was moving in the king so the king would respond favorably towards Nehemiah. God is always, always for his people. And we forget this so often because when we have a chance to pray for our kids, to pray for our husband, to pray for our wife, it is so narrow, it is so vague. It's so ambiguous. It's so faithless. Prayer is a connection to God, to, to, to his power. 
It's a uniting with his will for his purpose, for his gospel, for his glory. And Christian homes have an opportunity to do this so life change can come. God is for the family. If you hear anything, hear that. God is for the family. That's why in the Old Testament, at the very beginning in Genesis, he establishes the family. He establishes husband and wife and child. He, he upholds this through the whole story of the Old Testament. Through all of the forerunners of our faith, he builds into their families. He builds into their children. He hears their prayers. He hears the prayer of Sarah, I'm barren, I want a child. God answers that. He does it with David. He does it with Solomon. He does it with even all the rotten kings that we learn about in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. All the way into the New Testament where God's church is called family. And when he speaks of Jesus, he calls Jesus the groom. And what does he call us? He calls us the bride. And he says what we do here is a representation of how he looks to his son and how his son looks to him, that what we do here is family. What we do here is relation. It's connection. And our homes are to be a representation, not just of good moms and dads just trying to hang on and get their kids through graduation so they can go to a good college and meet a good girl or meet a good guy and have a good marriage. That's not what this is about. What we do in our homes is to hold out to the world. This is the gospel. It's not easy Sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes we don't get it right. But we keep going on because grace is there because God believes in my home. He believes in my marriage. He believes in my children. God is always for the home. He's always for his people. And he wants you to ask of him. He was about rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah and he's about rebuilding the fences around your home. Nehemiah asks, and he acts in that way. He acts by asking. And then we see that he acts by inspecting. We won't read it, but in the the, the next little chunk of Nehemiah chapter 2, in verses 9 through 16, it talks about how Nehemiah makes it to Jerusalem. He gets passage from the king, he gets a royal detachment, he gets timber, and he rolls into Jerusalem, and he hits the ground running. And he goes and he inspects the walls. He tours the cities. He sees the wreckage. He begins to formulate a plan. He sees where, where some animals can't go in and out or, or where, where there's a significant breach and it's going to let raiders come in and, and terrorize the city. He even meets some opposition. We're going to talk about them next week, about what, what it meant, means to meet opposition in our desire to build our families. But it was vital for Nehemiah to, to, to see the breaches. It was vital for him to formulate a plan. And it's vital for us to do the very same in our own lives, in our own families, in our own journey with the Lord, in our own connection with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our accountability circles. We have to take time inspecting our life, inspecting our families, inspecting our homes. Where are the breaches? How do I get a plan? A lot of times, this has to happen when we get into Word. We have to be here. If you're not here, the walls will stay down. The walls will never go up. There'll never be a plan. We must invest here on our own, one-on-one. It doesn't matter if you read one verse or one chapter or one book or if you're like Chris Edmondson and you follow him on Twitter, he reads 900 verses every single day. And he puts them out there for us on Twitter. Chris just finished day 99 of the God is awesome plan. 
Chris finished day 106 of God is Cool plan. I'm like, how many plans is this guy reading? I love that guy. I love my pastor and how much he loves Scripture. Can I tell you one thing he asks us often as staff members? He asks us, are we spending time in the Word? I don't need a pastor who's like, are you doing your job? You ready to work? I need you to do this. I need a pastor who first shows himself to be a man of the word and then expects it of his staff. He expects it of his pastors. I'm in the word, you're going to be in the word. And if we're not in the word, we better turn the the keys in. We better shut this thing down. We must be here. You must be there. We've got to be in the word. And that's where we inspect our lives. That's where we begin to see the breaches. We have to be in prayer. I know you're shocked by that point. We've got to pray. I'm going to beat it into you this week. I'm going to beat it into you next week. And on my fourth week, my last year, I'm going to talk about prayer again. We've got to pray. We've got to say to God, what is going on? How do I work through this? Help me. We've got to be in conversation with our spouses, with our family members. If you're not married or you're waiting to get married, you've got to have an accountability circle, some people that you trust around you. We've got to have conversation with them. We've got to be in the word. We've got to be in prayer. We've got to be in conversation. And lastly, we've got to be humble. We have to be humble to say, I'm not a very good dad. I'm not a really good mom right now. I'm not really good at that. Can I be humble about that? I'm not really good at being humble. But I love my wife. Who will come to me so often, she's like, I really have struggled to be a mom today. Can I be honest with you? My wife is incredible. She's incredible. She does things that I'll never have the strength or energy or talent to do with our kids, and she does it every single day. She doesn't complain. And then she comes to me, she's like, I haven't been good today. I struggle today. We have to be humble to say, where are the breaches? Where are the weaknesses? Where are the tensions? Because the ideal is not going to happen. I'm sorry to break it to you. We're never going to have the ideal home. We're never going to have the ideal marriage. We're never going to have ideal kids. And guys, that's the way I want it to be. I want a real home, and I want a real marriage, and I want real kids. I don't want to be perfect, but I want to strive every single day to be closer to perfect. Because my God deserves it, my wife deserves it, and my children deserve it. And if I'm doing it there, I'm giving to my church the best that I can. We have to be in the word. We have to be in prayer. We have to be in conversation. We have to be humble. Because when we're real, and we ask God to be real with us, that's when we see his power and his movement. Nehemiah acted by inspecting. He acted by asking. And finally, he acted by leading. He shows leadership. We get to verse 17 and 18. And up until this point, it's, it's vital for us to know that what Nehemiah had done as he inspected the walls, the book tells us he did it at night. No one really knew why he was there. They couldn't miss him coming in because probably came in with chariots, with armed guards. And most of the people probably were like, well, maybe he's here to do something. Maybe he's just on behalf of the king of Persia. But nevertheless, he rolls into town. And then that night, he goes out to look at the walls. And the next night he goes out to look at the walls. And the next night he goes out to look at the walls. He does it all under the cloak of darkness. So he can formulate a plan, and I think so he can pray. And then in verses 17 and 18, 
He brings all of the leaders of Jerusalem, all of the religious leaders, all of the civic leaders, he brings them together. And look what he says to them in verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And here's their response. They said to him, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah led. He prayed, he acted, he asked, he inspected, and then he led. Because God had been building in him this calling, this conviction, this desire. He'd been building in him this obedience. And he looks at me, he's like, look at the trouble we're in. This didn't shock the people. Like, yes, we're in a huge mess. Nehemiah says, it's time to do something about it. The messes in your family, the messes in your homes, they're of no surprise to you. But God's waiting for you to lead, for you to stand up and say, no more. We know, most of us know what needs to happen. So it's time for us to prayerfully act. Oh, my my kids don't want to go to church. It's because you don't worship at home. Our finances are terrible. Stop buying crap on credit cards. My family is entitled and selfish. It's because you all don't serve anyone. There's a lack of depth in my life. It's because you don't ever go to a small group. You don't have Bible study. You don't have have a time to read the scripture on your own. We know the mess. We see it. And these leaders of Jerusalem were like, yeah, it's a big mess. Those walls really stink. They're not keeping anybody out. It's time to lead. Nehemiah led, and it's time for us to rise up and say, enough is enough. We're going to have to cut back on things. We're going to have to gather as a family. We're going to have to turn the TV off. We're going to have to shut the computer off or turn the iPad off or the iPhone off or the BlackBerry off or the Android off or whatever it is, the Game Boy, the the dog, the cat, whatever you got to turn off. It's time for us to lead. And as I shared last week, you are the perfect leader for your home. You have been placed there by God. You've been placed into this marriage. You've been placed as a child. You've been placed as a brother, as a sister, as a parent, as a husband, as a wife. It is time to lead. And when Nehemiah says, I will lead, look what the people say. They say, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. It had been years since the walls had been destroyed. It had been 94 years since King Cyrus had let him go. It had been 12 years since Ezra led the first group out of exile back into Jerusalem. This had been a mess for almost a century. And Nehemiah walks in, and because he had prayed, and because he had acted upon God's leadership in his life, he looked at the people and he said, can we build it? And they said, yes, we can. We can do this. All it took is for someone to stand up and say, let's go. Let's work. It's not going to be easy. Sometimes it's not going to be fun. But this is what our city needs. And we, we ourselves, must do that in our own homes, and our own marriages. So it gives us our big idea today. If you, if you hook onto something, hook onto this. Families aren't made. They are built. And they need leaders to build them. Good relationships aren't made. 
Like, hey, you want to go out with me? Yeah, I'll go out with you. Oh, we're the perfect couple. Want to get married? Yeah, I want to get married. Yeah, we're the perfect married couple. It doesn't happen that way. You've got to build. You've got to work. And God's looking for Nehemiah leaders who will pray and who will respond, who will act. I have a Nehemiah mother. I have a fine, wonderful, incredible mom. And I make fun of her a lot because she totally didn't sign me up for Jewry self-defense. When I was 17 years old, I cut a deal with my parents. I will go to church with you every Sunday, and I'll go to Sunday school every Sunday until I'm 18. And then I decide if I want to go to church or not. Because when I was 17 years old, I had no desire to go to church. I had no desire to worship. I had no desire to learn. I didn't want to read the Bible. Christianity meant nothing to me. And my parents made this kind of last-ditch move. They moved us to a new church. Our family's going to go try this church. Whatever. I'll give you a year. Graduate next year. I'm done. One day, my mom came home from church. I had gone to the early service so I could get the heck out of there. And my mom, not like any of you would ever do that. My mom rolls home and she goes, did you hear about the youth retreat that, that they're doing? I was like, yeah, I, I saw the announcement. And she's like, do you think you'd want to go to that? And I said, no. She said, too bad, I signed you up. My parents took me kicking and screaming. I remind you, I was 17. They took me kicking and screaming to a retreat that began a process that changed my life. I would not be here today as a minister, I would not be here today as someone saved by the grace of Jesus Christ if my mom hadn't prayerfully acted on behalf of her son. Enough is enough. I'm going to lead my son. God has given him to me. I am his steward. She acted. That retreat set in motion me learning more about Christ, learning more about the gospel, and three months later, I was baptized. Four and a half months later, I surrendered to a call to ministry. And I'm here today because of my mother, who is Nehemiah-like, and said, I'm going to pray for my son, and I'm going to act for my son. It is time for us to lead our homes, lead our families, lead our own lives, and be, in, be responsible for how we live and act under the calling and grace and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Time for us to act. So what are you asking? Are you making God-centered, huge requests on faith for your home, for your kids, for your family? Are you inspecting the tensions, the, 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 the potential breaches in your life? Are you making inspections? Are you leading? Are you leading your home? Are you leading your life to be more like Christ? I beg of you, pray and act. Join me in prayer. Father, many of us are here today because we had praying parents who loved us so much that not only did they take us to church, they prayed for us. They talked about it at the dinner table. They talked about it when we went places. They made us go to church when we were on vacation. And even today, we're still standing because our parents are praying for us. And God, many of us here today, because we didn't have a family that did that, and because of your deep love for us, you said, I will be your father. 
And through the love of Jesus Christ, you can be my child. Thank you for the grace, the love, for the mercy you pour out again and again and again. Thank you because you are for us. You're for our homes and our families. And many of us today, God, we're hanging on. We don't want to respond to Jesus Christ, but we know, we know that even though there's fear there, that that's what we're supposed to do. May today be a day of salvation. Many of us, our, our homes and our marriages are just barely hanging on. God, I pray, I pray that you will give us the strength to fight one more day. To seek your will and your heart, your mind for our family. God, I beg that today be a great day for many of us to step out in faith and lead our homes. I lift up this church, these people, these families, these couples, these individuals to you and pray over them. In the name of Jesus, amen.